Today I'm going to talk about biblical masculinity. That's a mouthful. Uh, you think masculinity is hard to say, try to say femininity ten times real fast. <laughs> Uh, but when we think about biblical masculinity, I'm wondering how many even in this audience has even heard a sermon on biblical masculinity. Um, it's probably not a topic that gets addressed very often, and yet in our culture today, with the gender confusion going on, not only are we confused about gender, we're confused about what that gender is supposed to look like and act like, behave like uh, in a christ honoring way. And so I really, and, and then when you look up, you know, the whole idea of masculine, if I throw that out to you, if I, I wish I could come around with a microphone and hold it up to you and say, what is biblical masculinity? Probably be a lot of quiet times going on <laughs> right now. You'd be like, I, I don't know, what is masculinity? And somebody who's big and strong and hairy and athletic and good looking and no fears and no tears and no weakness. That's probably what some people would say. One man said if the topic was being discussed in one of America's most prestigious college campuses, there would be a lot of different answers to define masculinity. Some of them would be a man should be macho and self-reliant. A man should be interdependent and sensitive. A real man must be romantic. All boys should be raised to be good at sports in order to express their masculinity and relate to other men. A man's man is successful and a leader. I mean, we can look in different examples even in Scripture. You know, you look at a man like Samson. He was not a wimp. He was strong, rough, tough, unparalleled in strength, but he was a he-man with a she-weakness, as they say. I kind of picture Samson as kind of an Arnold Schwarzenegger type person who has a very short, small vocabulary. You know, he saw that woman he wanted, God, that's the woman I want. He told his parents, get her for me. You know, I mean, you can just sense him, not, you know, not having a very big vocabulary, I want her, you know. Um, or you could look at Goliath, a champion warrior. Uh, Esau, a hunter, a man of the woods. But let's look at even the dictionary definition of masculinity, and you're going to see the incredible ambiguity that surrounds a proper understanding of masculinity by its vagueness. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary. Here's how it defines masculinity. As a male. Okay? A male. Having qualities appropriate to or usually associated with a man. That really clears it up. Vocabulary.com, the trait of behaving in ways considered typical for men. I mean, what does that mean? Belching at the dinner table and picking your nose in public? I mean, honestly, what does that really mean? English Oxford Dictionaries, qualities or attributes regarded as characteristic of men. Leaving his sweaty socks on the bedroom floor? I mean, it doesn't tell us what a man is. And yet, the biblical worldview regarding masculinity and femininity of what we really believe each sex is and what should be like will influence how we evaluate the two genders and how attitudes and behaviors are carried out. And not only that, but when we don't understand biblical masculinity, it impacts the marriage relationship 
It impacts rearing children, because how do we rear children if we, how are we going to raise boys up to be men if we don't know what men, a biblical masculinity man looks like? How are we going to do that? How are we going to treat them to handle peer pressure? And so this really impacts that, but not only impacts that, it impacts the gospel. You say, why do you say that? I say that because when we as men live out biblical masculinity, we will bring glory to God. And I think that's what God intends. And, you know, when we look in the scripture, we can see in the life of Adam prior to sin, he would have been a prime example of biblical masculinity prior to sin. So here's a bigger question. Why are there so many different viewpoints on masculinity? Stuart Scott suggests two reasons why we have so many different viewpoints on masculinity. One is sinfulness affects one's concept of masculinity, the depravity of man. The confusion in society in regard to masculinity is because man has strayed so far from God's original intent. God created man at his best, Adam. Adam being created by the perfect creator was the epitome of true masculinity, but shortly after his fall, he was greatly in fact, in, in affected by his choice to sin. From that point on, left to himself, man's depravity pushes him to stray in every aspect of life. And masculinity is just one of the areas that has been corrupted by sin. So we've adopted corrupted ideas about what it means to be manly. In the ancient world, there was everything from mild mistreatment of women to full-scale barbarianism. Early Greek culture, Stuart Scott says, real men looked down on their wives as mere childbearers and housekeepers. They did not allow them to be at the dinner table or in any assembly. In the Roman culture, women were no more than a means to legally bear children as well as a temporary fancy that could be discarded on a whim. So the sinfulness of man has corrupted biblical masculinity, what it is. Secondly, a loss of absolutes has affected one's concept of masculinity. Because we've lost the concept of absolutes, we do not understand masculinity anymore. Because there's a relativism, a belief that there is no ultimate standard, that the resulting individualism, only I know what is right for me, has had a great impact on gender concepts. The no absolutes mentality means that man is left to his own wisdom on the subject of masculinity. That wisdom is totally subjective and will be based on one's own desires, culture, or educational training in psychology, sociology, or anthropology. This kind of wisdom will be opposed to God's wisdom and standards. Our ideas are selfish, often, and self-serving. And culture has historically followed man's depravity by giving us American role models basically consisting of pathetic, immoral sports figures, movie stars, and rock musicians. J.I. Packer describes it this way, the truth is that because we have lost touch with God and his word, we have lost the secret both of community and of identity. Because at the deepest level, we know we do not know who or what we are or what we exist for. 
So the first step to regaining a true understanding of masculinity is to acknowledge that man's wisdom is misleading. Proverbs 14:12 says there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. We have forsaken the only dependable absolute there is in scripture, and so therefore we've lost the idea of masculinity. There's confusion and chaos. But God's truth is timeless and transcultural. And therefore, it is sufficient and reliable to give us what we need in defining biblical masculinity. So here's the premise that God's glory is magnified when men live the way God intended. God's glory is magnified. So that's why I want to challenge us with biblical masculinity for us men to be the men that God intended. How are we going to do that? We need to look at the scripture and say, what does the scripture say? How do we look at a biblically masculine man? Jesus is the perfect man. There is nothing unmanly about Jesus. No one would say anything is unmanly about Jesus. He is the perfect man perfect picture of masculinity and he tells us in 1st John 2 6 that we are to walk as Jesus walked so let's look at five qualities of biblical masculinity five qualities of biblical masculinity the first one is a God-centered mindset we are to strive to accomplish the will of God in our lives you say isn't that true of women yes it is But we as men are called to be the leaders in our families, the leaders in our homes, the leaders in our culture, the leaders in society, and the women are the helpers and the followers. We set the example. We need to be God-centered mindset in the leaders of our homes, the leaders of our children. God has called us to do that. We are to lead, love, protect, and provide That's what God has called us to do, to be biblically masculine men, to lead, not be passive in that leadership, to lead. If there's a lack of prayer in your home, it's not your wife's fault. If there's a lack of Bible reading in your home, it's not your wife's fault. It's our fault. We are to strive to accomplish God's will. Jesus said in John 4, 34, oops, it skipped Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There is a biblically masculine man who does the will of God. And is more concerned about the will and the heart of God and pleasing God than pleasing his peers and his friends. He wants to please the Father. If you want a biblically masculine man, find one, ladies, who wants to accomplish the will of God in his life. That is the highest priority of his life. If you find that, you will find a man who will treat you, who will love you, who will respect you, who will provide for you and protect you and lead you in the way you need to go. Do not sacrifice for anything less. God-centered mindset. Jesus said also in John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Boy, you find a man like that, latch on to him. If you have a husband like that, you praise him and cheer him on. 
to continue to be that champion in your family that you need. A God-centered mindset. So here's some questions. Am I leading my family in a way that pleases the Lord? If so, what are the things I am doing to back up my answer? If not, what things do I need to start doing to be a man that exhibits biblical masculinity? Am I offering my wife and children a blueprint of Christianity? If you have a child that you see begin to stray, do you have the heart to sit down with them and have a heart-to-heart -heart talk? You need to. You need to be willing to do that and share with them your concern and be willing to do that. To pray with and for our wives, to pray with and for our children or our grandchildren. How often do you do that? It's a conviction in our lives. Do neighbors and coworkers see me as a man who encompasses biblical masculinity? The second aspect of a God-centered life is one who is spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. Jesus, it says in Luke 4, 1, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He was a spirit-filled man. Leonard Ravenhill, who was an English uh, evangelist. He said, a sinning man stops praying and a praying man stops sinning. I like that. A sinning man stops praying and a praying man stops sinning. Why? Because you be filled with the Spirit of God when you pray and you seek the Lord and the Holy Spirit is able to check your conscience at the door. It says in Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. Notice in the power of the Spirit, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, there's a power that God gives us to live above sin, to hate sin, to turn from it, and to be the man that God wants us to be. Thirdly, a God-centered life is someone who shares the gospel with others. In Mark 1.14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus was the perfect man. Biblical masculinity is a person who will share the gospel with the lost, who is concerned about the lost. In Mark 1.15, look at the next verse saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It was always flowing from the lips of our Savior because he was a biblical, masculine man who was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It was the power of God to salvation. Leonard Ravenhill also asked this question. He said, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Let me say that again. He said, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? He said his ambition, his main ambition in life was to be on the devil's most wanted list. I like that. He wanted to be on the devil's most wanted list. There was a chef that recently 
committed suicide. Anthony Bourdain, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, Anthony Bourdain, he was on television a lot, uh, but he reflected on his life battling hedonism. And here's what he says, celebrity, chef, writer, and TV personality, Anthony Bourdain, he wore a tattoo on his arm that read in ancient Greek, I am certain of nothing. He committed suicide on June 8th, 2018, at the age of 61. And in an interview for Men's Journal in 2014, Bourdain was asked this question, what are the benefits of hedonism and what are the risks? Bourdain replied, look, I understand that inside me there is a greedy, gluttonous, lazy hippie, you know. I understand that. There's a guy inside me who wants to lay in bed and smoke weed all day and watch cartoons and old movies. He said, I could easily do that. My whole life is a series of stratagems to avoid and outwit that guy. I'm aware of my appetites and I don't let them take charge. And then he takes his life. Do you think he understood biblical masculinity, a God-centered life? Jesus also, the Bible says, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. In a recent book, Levi Lusco writes, it takes the cooperation of 72 different muscles to produce speech. On average, 16,000 words come out of your mouth every day. He said it adds up to a whopping 860.3 million words in the average American lifetime. What do all the nouns, verbs, adjectives, and sentences say about your life and the condition of your heart? Some people think that being a man is being able to use profanity and lewd speech. I worked with guys that used all kind of language and they thought that was being a man. But they had no concept of biblical masculinity that no deceit is in our mouth. Well, let's go on to the second quality. You gotta move a little faster. Quality number two, biblically masculine man. Genuine love for God and others. We actively seek ways to minister to the needs of others. We use our strength, our power, and our influence to minister in, our, in the broken world that we live. Jesus was moved by the brokenness of others. He saw their lostness, and it broke his heart. He saw people wandering, harassed, and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He denied himself and his selfish desires. He practiced gentleness in words and actions. Matthew 4.23 shows us this. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's a biblically masculine man who is looking for opportunities to invest in someone to point them to Jesus Christ. God-centered life, genuine love for God and others. 
Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God is looking for some selfless men who will invest in people to bring them to Christ. We've had people come in our doors and they were here for a number of weeks. And now they haven't been here in a number of weeks and I wonder how many people have even tried to reach out and contact them outside the walls of the church. Because you care. They were here, they're not here. Have you noticed? Number one, and if you have, what are you doing about it? Is that the pastor's job? Or is it the job of biblically masculine men to reach out to other men? Say, hey, where you been? I missed you. To genuinely care about them. Quality number three. I'll move on. Exercises courage and confidence. He's willing to lead others. He takes initiative when appropriate. Don't sit back and criticize, looking for ways, rather look for ways to strengthen others. Speak truth into people's lives. And sometimes there's hard truth. There's men I've had to sit down with and I say, this is hard for me to tell you this. <laughs> I gotta tell you this. That's not easy to do. But why do you do it? Because you love them and you care about them and I see a cliff they're about to go over and love says, Tell them about the cliff, Roy. Because I can tell you, there was a time in my life when I would see the cliff and I would say nothing. God says, you can't do that. That's not love. Love is seeing the cliff and telling them, you are headed for disaster. You're headed for disaster. I had a guy in my office a number of weeks ago and I had met with him regularly for weeks and over a year. And he said, he's done. Didn't want to meet anymore, didn't want. And I said, you are making all the wrong decisions. But it's not my job to change a person. I can't change a person. I can invest in them and love them, and that's what God has called us to do. But we have to do it with courage and confidence, not cockiness, not arrogance, but through our own brokenness. We do it. We speak truth into people's lives. There was a large crowd that followed Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And I'll tell you this, a society will become sick in a hurry when men are in charge who do not exercise their courage and confidence in Christ. That society will be sick. Let me, let me ask you this uh, quickly. Which leader would you follow? Let me give you a couple choices. In his book, Immeasurable, Sky Jethani writes this. Compare two leaders. Leader A lifted an entire nation in a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and inspiring passion. He launched a movement that impacted literally everyone alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific rev revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane, began human exploration of space, and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has in one way or another been influenced by this man. By the time he died at the age of only 56, everyone on the planet knew his name. 
Without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Leader B lived during the same era. In fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A. But his life was very different. At the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just 100 students. He wrote a few books, but was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family, and he had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name. And most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So given the choice, which leader's strategy would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a keynote address by Leader A? Or the one with a small workshop in a back hall led by Leader B? If you are inspired by the world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, congratulations. You've chosen Adolf Hitler. Leader B was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his relentless opposition to Hitler. Let me talk to the students for a moment in school. As a student in school, in what ways do you exercise courage and confidence among your peers? How do you do that to show your biblical masculinity? When they want you to participate in something that is not Christ-like, how willing are you to stand up and speak up and say, I'm not doing that because I want to honor the Lord with my life? You are being a biblically masculine man. That's what God has called us to do. Courage and confidence in Christ. How about the adults? When you're around people whose values are different than yours, do you exercise courage and confidence to bring glory to God? In the process, God's Spirit uses your testimony to prick their conscience of the people around you. I'm reminded of the man who was he attended a banquet and a guy was up giving a speech and as he gave his speech, in the middle of his speech, he took the Lord's name in vain. And this guy, from his table, he stood up and not only did he stand up, but he got up in his chair and he pointed at the speaker and he said, Sir, leave Christ out of it. And he sat back down. At the end of that man's speech, there were more people in line to shake that man's hand than the speaker. Why? His courage and confidence in Christ. Number four, quality number four, quickly. Demonstrates conscientiousness in his responsibilities. He is diligent in his duties. He does not shirk his responsibilities. He works hard and is faithful in his commitment. Here's what Jesus said in John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Not lazy, not lackadaisical, not que sera sera, <laughs> whatever will be, will be. But you're involved. You're not a quitter when things don't go your way. You work in light of the work being done before the eyes of him with whom we have to do.
There was a guy who was an executive and he did a lot of business traveling and, and one day, as, and his name was Joe, as Joe was on his flight, he commented to himself, I can't believe this flight crew. He said, they are the most attentive, responsive flight crew I have ever seen. And toward the end of the flight, he stopped one of the flight crew members. He said, excuse me. He said, I don't mean to bother you, but I fly a lot. I've never seen a flight crew like this. You are the most engaged, enthusiastic, service-oriented flight crew I've ever seen. The female flight attendant got a little smile on her face, and she bent down and whispered to my friend Joe, Thank you, sir. But for that, you can thank the woman seated back there in seat 12B. She paused and nodded her head slightly towards seat 12B and continued, You see, sir, the woman in seat 12B is the head supervisor for all the flight attendants for airlines, and she's on our flight. When we really know that Jesus is on our flight, he's seated in 12B, it'll impact how we serve the Lord. That we are serving for an audience of one in how we serve the Lord. Conscientiousness in our responsibilities. Let's go to the last one. Quality number five, possesses a humble spirit. He's a servant, he's teachable, he's willing to learn from others. He's a student seeking out ways to grow in his effectiveness. He doesn't know it all and he doesn't abuse his authority. He desires to glorify God and not doing things for his own personal glory or attention. He keeps moving forward even if he doesn't get strokes on his back. Jesus said in John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. That should be the attitude of our heart. National Geographic website, there's a kid's version, and it talks about the puffer fish. The puffer fish can inflate into a ball shape to evade predators. It's also known as the blowfish. These clumsy swimmers fill their elastic stomachs with huge amounts of water and sometimes air and blow themselves up several times to their normal size. But they're not just cute. Most puffer fish contain a toxic substance that make them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. The toxin is deadly to humans, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans, and there's no known antidote. Like puffer fish, we can blow ourselves up to make ourselves look good. God the purpose of biblical masculinity is to magnify God and live as he intended. That's his desire for us. John Stott once said, Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Pride will kill a marriage. 
a church, a relationship, a friendship can be destroyed by pride. God wants us to depend on him. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. As you bow your heads, and even though you're not a man here this morning, there's still aspects of these qualities that you can embrace as well. But God has given men a unique position in society to be the leaders in society, to be the leaders in their home to be the leaders in the church. It's very clear in Scripture that God has given that responsibility and role to men. And then we have students who are growing up trying to understand what it means to be a man. And there's lots of peer pressure about what you should be, about how you should act. If you draw your cues from the crowd, you will be far from what God wants you to be. Far from what God wants you to be. We have to come back to Scripture and say, what is a biblically masculine man? He's God-centered. He loves. He's confident and bold. He's humble. He's all these things. And God wants us to promote the gospel through our masculinity. That we lead in such a way that our wives and children have a blueprint of what biblical masculinity is. You have boys in your home. They're going to be men one day. Are you setting the example of the man, the type of man that you want your son to be? Are you setting the example for your daughter so that she will know what to look for in a man who is biblically masculine? There's physical attraction and there's character attraction. God has given both of those. The character is so vital that we develop the inner man. And I would challenge you young people, you are faced with incredible peer pressure. The gender confusion that is going on, we have to come back to Scripture and say these are the absolutes in Scripture. God has called men to act a certain way, to behave a certain way. We are to lead, love, protect, and provide. God has called us to do that. Will you take that responsibility? We live in a fallen, broken world. We have a lot of people growing up in single-parent homes, and they have no role model. And they may walk into church looking for a man who will take them under their wing. And I want to challenge the men in this church, if you have a relationship with God, not a perfect one, but you are striving to be the man God wants you to be, would you pray about God giving you a man that he would lay a name on your heart, and you say, this is someone, I don't even, maybe, you may not even hardly know them at all. 
But this is a man that God has laid on your heart and you need to pursue them and build a relationship with them to invest in them. Maybe they're not even here this morning. We have men longing for someone to love them and invest in them. I think within them they have a desire to be godly but they don't know how. Or they have hurts and habits and hang-ups and addictions they can't overcome and they need a man to pray for them, to reach out to them, to care about them. And what a difference it would make. Because we got some boys that have grown up without a dad. Because dad either left the family or dad's incarcerated. We're in a broken world. We've got to do our part. Every one of us should be investing in someone on a regular basis. That's what God's called us to do. That is the gospel. The gospel is loving and investing in another person for the sake of the gospel. Know what a difference it would make. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, that's where you start being a man, is humbling yourself and coming to the cross and saying, I'm a broken individual. I need the gospel of grace and forgiveness for my sin. And bring your broken pieces to the Lord and he will mend you back together. He makes beauty out of ashes. Bring it to the Lord. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian man, but you have been caught in some kind of web of sin that you can't get out of. Would you humble yourself and seek another godly man who will pray for you and hold you accountable and help you become that godly man that God wants you to be? Wives, pray for your husbands that they would be there. You got more acceptance. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.